Welcome to Beyond the Pen, the podcast that delves into the untold stories of emerging authors and the literary world. I'm your host, Maccabee Griffin, and each week I'll be shining a spotlight on talented yet undiscovered authors, giving them a platform to share their incredible stories and unique journeys that brought them to the world of writing. In each episode, we'll deep dive into the story behind the story, exploring the inspirations, challenges, and triumphs that have shaped our guests' literary careers, and have some fun along the way. From the initial spark of an idea to the journey of crafting and publishing their books, we'll uncover the secrets that make their stories truly special. But that's not all. Once a month, we'll be joined by an expert from the publishing world who will share invaluable insights and advice for aspiring writers, answering your burning questions, and demystifying the path to success in the literary industry. At Beyond the Pen, my mission is simple, to entertain, educate, and encourage the next generation of great storytellers. So whether you're a writer, an avid reader, or simply someone with a passion for storytelling, Join us as we venture beyond the pen and celebrate the power of the written word. folks we are back today we are with a new author her name is jennifer style and she has created a historical fictional book called exile music now when i first started reading this book it is uh hit on a few things that most people wouldn't really talk about mostly because of the uh history based around it in fact there are countries that will not even talk about it at all and just to give you a heads up we are talking about the holocaust we are talking about jewish life during the nazi regime i say regime instead of air because that's what it was and a lot of other things that go along with that but we want to understand this history. We want to understand, you know, what music has to do with this. Because if you look at our history, music is embedded in everything that we have in our lives. Past, present, future, it will always be. So I'm going to go ahead and just bring in Miss Style and uh, let her introduce herself. So, Jennifer, thank you for being on our show. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, I'm glad at least somebody is. Um, <laughs> so, so first things first, could you please introduce yourself to our audience and tell us something, you know, that you're willing to give up that we can't find anywhere else about you? Right. Okay. Um, I'm a bit of an oversharer, so finding something that you can't find out about me will be tough, but I'll, I'll think of something. I am a novelist and memoirist. I have three books uh, out and a fourth finished and a fifth halfway written. I also write essays and short stories. I just finished um, an essay for the Kenyon Review. Um, I have just finished treatment for ovarian cancer. I suppose you won't see that on my website. Um, but I do keep an online blog about that because writing is how I cope with everything, including cancer. It turns out, although that was certainly not the way I saw my career going. Um, I am bisexual. I'm trying to think of other things about me that, but that's probably out there too. I... You know what? Hey, there. The one thing about the internet that we have definitely learned is that no matter what it is about us, it's very hard to come up with at least one thing. And I'm, I am going to be first and foremost saying I'm glad you are here because you know 
cancer is no joke. Um, my wife was a radiation, was a radiation therapist. Um, and she saw a lot of different people come in for various things, mostly men. Uh, but there was still quite a bit of women. And it is one of those things that, uh, I don't think no matter how long, you know, humans will be alive, we're probably still going to be dealing with it. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that you've actually got to beat cancer. Well, yes, at, at the moment there, I'm still on maintenance drugs to prevent a recurrence. I'm optimistically assuming I won't have a recurrence, but my assumption is in direct contradiction to the statistics. I'm just hoping I'm in the minority. Um, when it comes to ovarian cancer, as you said, is is definitely no joke. There's no screening for it. Um, it's almost never caught until you're at a very advanced stage. I'm extremely fortunate in that I responded quite well to chemotherapy and I had major surgery to remove most of what's between my ribs and my pelvis. <laughs> so. Ooh, man, that's, that is definitely no joke whatsoever on that one. Um, yeah. But nevertheless, uh, you have told a wonderful story in Exile Music, and I am so happy that we are able to talk about this because this is a story that I don't know how this started out, but people just don't, some people just really don't believe that it happened, which is by far the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard in my life. And it is something that should be spoken up more about because there were so many people uh, that were involved in this. And yes, it's, it's one of those things that um, history needs to continue to talk about no matter what. Uh, recently, I, I learned, you know, as a history buff that I, I, I enjoy talking about things from the 20s up to the mid 50s. That's my era mm -hmm. of interest. And Great. I've noticed that uh, the many losing countries within the world uh, have decided to either black out that part of the uh, part of time, or they have decided that we're going to put a spin on or we're going to talk about the aftermath more than the reasoning. And right. before we get into anything further, because I will talk like forever on this subject. Um, okay. Can you describe to us what your book is about in seven words or less? Yes, I can. I have a six word description and a seven word description. Hey, give me um, both. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, my six word description is musical Jews flee Austria for Bolivia. Okay. And my seven word one is Austrian Jewish girl flees Nazis to Bolivia. It's, I couldn't figure out a way to get musician in that one, right. but. It, it, this, I'm glad you talked about the musician part because this obviously it being the, the title being exile music. Um, right. There's so much, there's so many themes of music involved in this book, uh, excuse me, in this novel, because it's a very long novel, very long, uh, which is good because it's really got so much development in it. Um, I've noticed some people will put a little spin on the way they format their book, obviously being called Exile Music. Was there another reason besides that, that you really started to, um, instead of saying, you know, introduction, you put overture and then obviously broke it down into three main, uh, main points to that. Right. So the structure of the book actually came fairly late in the process. It was. I am not a planner. I never know where my books are going. So my first drafts are this messy sprawl of millions of pages. And I require a lot of rewriting and many drafts. 
And that's just how I work. If I, if I start to outline something and I know where it's going, I then have no interest in writing it. It's very boring. It's like coloring by numbers or coloring something in. I just, I need the magic of creation. And then in the editing process, that's where the art comes in. That's where you figure out, okay, how can every, how does this all add up and what's missing? Things like that. And so once I had a pretty solid draft I needed a way to organize the material I had that made sense given how the, how the book was shaping up. And I wanted it to mimic a musical form. And I, I thought, well, a symphony would be appropriate if it could follow the form of a symphony, but it's in six sections overall. And finding a, a symphony with six movements was not easy, but Mahler's third help me out in the end. So, um, and that was particularly appropriate because Mahler is part of the book uh-huh. and certainly inspired. I did a lot of reading about Mahler while doing the book. And so it's, dividing it in that way made a lot of sense to me, especially because music plays a major theme. All my characters are musicians. It just seemed to be the good organizing principle for for this book. Yeah. And, and, uh, as I was reading it, it was definitely one of those that really did work well with that, you know, talking about the first movement in Vienna and then going on from there to these other locations. I thought it was really, it, it was almost like being at an opera because yeah, being a music guy, myself, a theater guy, um, I did have the opportunity to actually go to one opera in my life. Um, it was the um, Barber of, I can't, Seville. thank you. Uh, <laughs> I did not want to destroy it. I knew I would. I did. <laughs> um, but speaking on that, I, th- I think it is very interesting how um, you're talking about something that many people would not, that, that is too painful to talk about. And uh, you, you've done it in a way that really uh, took us into a, into a time that needed to be talked about again, like I've said before. So understanding that, understanding that we are talking about uh, you know, Jewish families and the Holocaust and stuff like that. During the, uh, Overture, um, i.e. the introduction, we are introduced to two different families and the daughters obviously being very close to one another. Um, I wanted to understand in your mindset when you're creating this world, this historical fiction, um, what was it like to be the parents at this point uh, dealing with all the anti-Semitism that's going around with the Nazi uh, regime coming into power and stuff like that in 1928. They, so you have to keep in mind that, I mean, one thing that's important to keep in mind when you're writing is that characters don't know what's going to happen. They don't know how the Holocaust is going to unfold. They don't understand um, the risks they're, they're taking in staying in Austria. And I think at first, I mean, Orly, Orly's my main character, the young girl. She is too young to fully understand what's going on, but she senses the fear and worry that around her, um, the way kids pick up moods like, like that right away. Um, so the parents were in denial for a long time. So the father was playing, the father is a viola player with the Vienna Philharmonic and he's very involved in his music to the point where he doesn't want to think about politics. He doesn't want to think about world events. He just wants to keep playing music. That's all he wants to do. And so he doesn't want to leave the country. And it's his wife, Julia, who is the first person in the family to think maybe we need to get out of here. Um, because she's not being offered roles and she's an opera singer. She's not being offered roles anymore. And she sees their world growing smaller and smaller every day. The things they're allowed to do, the things they're allowed to own, the places they're allowed to sit are fewer every single day. And she sees it. And so she tries to convince her husband, we need to move. And and it's hard to convince him until 
the Nazis break their door down and take their house. And then it becomes urgent and they begin the very long process of trying to find a country that would take them. In 1938, there were only three countries in the world offering visas to Jews. So it was a really difficult time to get, to get out of the country. Um, and yeah, so that I hope answers that. About oh yeah. The parents. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It does. Um, so I'm going to follow up on that because I want to talk about the fathers real quick, because obviously okay. during, you know, the great war or world war one in, uh, 1918 uh, is when it concluded, uh, 1914 to 1918, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, they both had to serve. It, it's a given. It was one of those standards that if you were a male of a certain age and you were capable of doing it, then you were supposed to do it no matter what. And right. obviously with the history of, you know, the, uh, Serbian nationalist uh, assassinating uh, Franz Ferdinand and his wife uh, during their, um, I can't remember what it was. They're basically down the road uh, during his ceremony. I can't remember the word it's called. Um, This obviously created this entire mess of a war because of what happened. And these people were thrown into hell, basically. Um, but we also noticed that you showed us, instead of telling us, but you showed us the way that they were um, coping with the aftermath of dealing with no man's land and all the things that go with that. Why was it important for you to actually express that in a way to tell, show the two different sides the fathers were coping with this. Right. So, okay. So the father, as you mentioned, served in the Great War. Orly's father served in the Great War. And I mean, I spent five years researching this book and one of the accounts that I read talked about how, you know, there were so many Austrian Jews that fought for Austria in the First World War and then were murdered by Austria in the second. Um, and a lot of these men, you know, I've read accounts of them. So it's based on what actually happened. You know, I, I spent a lot of time reading first person memoirs and interviewing survivors, particularly in Bolivia, where we lived for four years and where I found the inspiration for this book. But I think, um, you know, and, and I think Austria is one of those countries that you mentioned that has not come to terms with their complicity in, in the war. I think Germany has done a much better job. They remember it. They have official ceremonies to remember it. They talk about it. They teach it in their schools. They, they have acknowledged what they've done. They've and, modified uh, what they teach. Right. <laughs> but at least well, you're right. They I, still I do. The well, them, but yeah. I mean, right. Um, but, but Austria, it, I, I, read this photo book that had interviews with, she had photographs and interviews with people. This was in the 1980s and the photographer went around and asked people about World War II. And the response from almost all of these people were, oh, that's that's the past. We don't talk about that. Yeah. Um, it's over. We don't want to talk about that. And it's not our fault. It's Germany. Germany made us do it. Um, you know, but of course, a lot of the Austrians out Nazi the Germans, like uh-huh. my character Orlin's neighbors, uh, you know, her father, um, who, you know, the Orly's best friend is not Jewish. So Annalisa's parents are not Jewish uh-huh. and her father's, um, quite brutal before the Nazis come. And so it's not all that difficult to turn him yeah. into someone doing, you know, the work of the Nazis. Yeah. So, um, and the girls are are then eventually forbidden to be together, of course, because she's a Jew and you don't want to be associated with that because it puts your life in danger. So, yeah. And, you know, it, it's, it's heartbreaking to, to hear that because there was a lot of yaw pins um, and uh, people that were, associating and approving of the Nazi uh, coalition is what they were noted for at that time. Um, 
but it was it was interesting to see that one was a drinker and one was a um one was finding himself again in the music that he loved mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's what i was really interested in because to me it as a veteran of the US army um mm-hmm. and who has seen uh battle before it is something different for everyone every soldier is different every man woman child and and family uh, member and friend are different when dealing with uh the aftermath of war um right and i noticed that when we were going into thinking about this entire thing and understanding that he was a drinker that the young the uh, girls decided they wanted to create their own place and i want to talk about and hopefully i can pronounce this right uh Freidenglück Hassenland. right i mean that's something i struggle with as well pronouncing that long word i created um <laughs> I am so happy to talk about Friedenglukhausenland, which is how I say it. Um, I, I do have a husband who speaks German, so he copy-edited mm-hmm. a lot of my German. And also he lived in Austria, and Austria-German is different. So yes. he changed some of my Germanisms to Austrianisms and, and helped me with that, um, which was incredibly useful. But So the idea for this, so I met survivors who fled Austria for Bolivia. And I met them when I was living in La Paz. I lived in La Paz, Bolivia for four years. So at that time, I was working on a different book called The Ambassador's Wife. So I wasn't actually actively looking for the subject of my next story, but I ended up becoming very close to one of these survivors and spent a lot of time interviewing another one of them. And at the same time, I had a very young daughter who was, I think, around three or four when one morning I was in the kitchen with her and making porridge. And she said, where did I live before Bolivia? And I said, you lived in London. And she said, before London. And I said, Jordan. And she said, before Jordan. And I said, "Um, gosh, Yemen, you lived in Yemen before Jordan. She said, before that, I said, you lived in my tummy. And she said, no, before I lived in your tummy, where did I live? And I said, well, you didn't exist before you lived in my tummy. And she said, I did too. I did too exist. I existed in Bunny Belts. And Bunny Belts is a country that is run by a queen and it has a hermaphrodite president so it can represent both male and female. And they're all vegetarians and they drive little cars that are powered by Japanese fans. And she went on and on. (laughs) And I mean, she literally spent seven years creating this world. It went on and on for years. I mean, we had, you know, Mama Bunny, who was the queen, Mm -hmm. like she visited us. We... We have maps of bunny belts that we and the surrounding countries. Um, at one point, I asked her if I could go, and she said, "I'm afraid you wouldn't get a visa." <laughs> um, I lo- I so, love the imagination of children, and I, I love right? it because my yeah. my children. Um, I remember many times we've had these conversations, and it just mm-hmm. just out of the blue comes up, or at least my oldest, right. he always told me that. Um, I chose you when I was in heaven. I chose you, right, and mom, right, and it it was interesting to think of it in the way like that too. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, and I have to I have to get the book for this one because it was so interesting um, how they described it, and one of the things that she said was that um oh my goodness where's it at uh about when oh man i want to i want to i want to specific oh i was in chapter one that's the reason why i was like where is it at i know it's there um i can tell i can say one more thing while you're looking if you want oh no i i got it right here Okay. Uh, Yeah, it was that um, when people were, uh, oh my gosh. Oh, the country is surrounded by stone walls. And when invaders try to get in the wind, uh, get in, 
the wind blows their hands off the doorknob. Yeah. I needed to know something. What What is going on in her mind to state that instead of the gate or anything like that, like most people would think, especially uh, a majority of other kids, of having a wall and having a, a, a gate, but it was the doorknob that got me. Was there a situation that happened that she could remember at that young age? That's a good question. I think she thought of the wind because they were trying to to create a world that was in contrast to the world in which they lived. They were trying to create a peaceful world. And the reason I started with these two girls creating a fictional world was that I figured given everything that was going on around them, when the world was getting scarier every day, they would need an imaginary world to retreat into. And that's how that first scene happened. And I needed her to do it with someone else to make it more interesting than just one kid sitting around dreaming up a world. But I think when it comes to the details, they were trying to think of things that they loved, that that used things they knew about that were peaceful. And I think having, say, a guard dog or guns or anything like that, they wanted to avoid that because that's what was going on all around them. Um, they wanted you know, maybe to use the element to keep people at the, like the wind, like the world would be on their side, the elements, even the wind would be on their side um, and, and blow people away with and which wouldn't hurt them. Right. Yeah. Cause I remember at one point she said um, when they were talking about soldiers, uh, they were saying obviously that both their fathers were soldiers, but it was right. uh, when they were creating um, another character, uh, Vati Haas. Um, right. He said that uh, he he died of silliness. Right. And you know this, this it was silly of him to become a soldier. So there was a lot of little things in, in my mind, a lot of foreshadowing, even from the beginning of this, on the way that soldiers were looked at at this point. Mm -hmm. Even comparative to uh, the first opera that uh, her mother, uh, Orly's mother, actually took her to. Now, right. why that specific one? Because, again, even she said in the book, there was plenty of other operas out there that were, you know, more, a better, uh, better choice for a child at that age. But she took her to one that was just more murderous and bloody and you know things of that right nature. right well i think first of all i when i did my research every single opera i mentioned in the book was performed on the day that i say it was performed on and was performed by the people mm -hmm. who i say who i say performed in it so the, every single opera mention is absolutely true to history except for the fact that my fictional character also sang in it. So, go. so that, you know, that's the one thing that was different. So I think, you know, part of it was purely logistical. I had to find an mm -hmm. opera that fit in with my timeline and I had to find an opera that her mother wasn't in, but might've taken her to. And so the part of it was what works with the timeline. And, um, and I think also parents were perhaps not quite as protective of their children as we are now. Mm -hmm. um, and opera was her mother's art form. And I think she thought this is the world it's violent and mm -hmm. not everybody survives. And, you know, it was also about, you know, about a religious war, mm -hmm. Protestants and Catholics instead of Jews. But so that that's interesting. It's kind of another uh, it's also the result of discrimination. So in a way, it's also foreshadowing. Right. Um, and that's the reason why I was looking at it. I was like, yes, this is, there's so much of these little intricate pieces here and there that foreshadow literally everything that their entire journey through this entire thing. Right. And right. speaking on that, after during the intermission, because here's another thing that I thought was really interesting was Let's talk about um, Ordain. Ordain and Ilsa. Because right. even though yes. they're just there for like a paragraph or two, 
there is such an impact in the narrative with these two. So for everyone else, Ordain um, is a female, just like Ilsa. However, she dresses in trousers. She dresses like a man. She has short hair and everything. And when I was looking at this, I was like, the when she asked her, it's like, are you a girl? And obviously, you know, her mom's like, oh, I'm so sorry for this. You shouldn't ask that stuff, which is hilarious. Right, right. Um, yeah. But there's a lot of things even before that, that they start to talk about, like every opera, you can't, the, the, the women can't ask questions about anything. And right. this was like a merging of that idea of like the old fashioned women are just, they have their place. That's it. But then all of a sudden in Vienna, because of history and everything else, there was a powering of women there as well. What was, mm -hmm. was there another reason besides just the obvious saying, hey, two women can live in the same spot and in the same house and everything else? Was there another reason why you added those two specifically to the, to the story? There were probably a lot of reasons. I, I spent a lot of time reading books that came out in the 20s and 30s. So books that came out in the 20s and 30s that were translated into English because I don't read German. So I, but I read as many books as I could. So I would have read the books that Orly would have read that her parents would have read around that time so that I had kind of that literary background that they would have had books they would have seen. And I came across a book called The Scorpion, which is actually a trilogy and it's a lesbian trilogy. And it was published in the thirties and it by open lesbians who lived together. And I started looking into what gay life was like at that time. And we tend to think, I think every generation tends to think they invented sex and that before now it didn't exist. Exactly. Because, of course, yeah. Right. Because we don't have much of a historical record of homosexuality. We were like, oh, homosexuality. We also invented that. We invented gender. We invented all this stuff. But no, it's always been there. It's mm -hmm. always been there. There's always been people who played around with gender. There's always been homosexuals. There's always been all of this. And so I wanted to include that to say that, you know, this people, there were women walking around in tuxedos oh, yeah. in the 1930s. Like it, it, it existed and it happened. And of course, you know, Orly, well, I don't want to give too much away, but I mean, Orly's sexuality uh, is, ends up forming more towards women than towards men, let's say. And this was kind of the first time she realized that, that this was possible. So it was also kind of a formative moment because of that. Are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, sorry. You're good. Um, You're recording okay. on your end too. So if it okay. if that happens again, you can just continue to explain, continue the talk and everything too. Okay, great. Sorry, the image froze for a second. You're good. And I panicked. You're good. You're good. <laughs> You're good. Right. So yeah. So that's how I came to that to that story. Um, I, I thought that was an important scene to include for, for a lot of reasons. And also because her mother, I think in the world of the arts, mm -hmm. they were more likely to come across people who were a little more open about their sexuality yeah. than say in banking. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I also, cause you know, again, be, because of this, the timeline that we're, we're talking about, um, I, I tend to really go down some rabbit holes and I was looking at it before uh, this specifically. And I was like, okay, they're roommates, roommates. And, you know, one's dressed more masculine than the other. And then right. I started to realize the, the reasoning was what really hit it for me. It's like when she, when Orly asks her, you know, why is she dressed in a tuxedo? Her mom automatically says, oh, she's doing that because she's a pianist. And I started to really look and I was like, was there any, any real women like that? And I came across one and her name was Grace Bentley. And she was a, a black woman here in the, in the United States that was a pianist that had the top hat, you know, everything just up, up all the way. She was dressed to the T. Um, and I was looking at them. I was like, Maybe that's why I'm eh, never mind. Uh, but I it just sent me on this 
spiral of the con- continuing down this rabbit hole. Um, right. But mm-hmm. but the mentality of you know her dodging the questions or not telling the full truth or things of that nature really came into uh, upfront on this because of the fact that there was another part that I wanted to talk to you about is about the idea that when she says, uh, Orly asks her about, you know, do Jews believe in heaven? Because again, they just came from an opera that was talking about that stuff. Um, just so we know that Le Ugno is the opera. Thank you. Thank I you. hadn't title before oh you're good yeah. you're good because i okay. did not want to destroy that one at all either um right. but she tells her is like oh jews don't believe in heaven but then that that started to get me thinking it was like wait a minute do they it's because i know some jews and they believe in it and i wanted to ask you was there a specific event that happened in her mother or her father's life that really made feared made them fear that there was heaven and hell? That is a very good question. I hadn't specifically thought of it in that way. At the time, most of the Jews living in Vienna were secular, um, very integrated into society, um, not particularly orthodox um, and not particularly religious for the most part. Not to say that religious people didn't exist, but it it just wasn't... um, it wasn't, I mean, right now in, you know, I did some, a lot of my research in Vienna and most of what is left of the Jewish population, which is pretty tiny, um, is Orthodox. And that was really interesting um, that there was that change. But I think, you know, her mother at the time, you know, they observe the holidays, they observe um, the Jewish holidays, but I think, you know, they just weren't particularly raised Jewish weren't particularly, I mean, they were really Jewish, sorry. But I mean, actually, this brings me to a really interesting argument I had with, um, so my, so the other, the other time, the earlier last year when I was sick, a friend came to visit me um, and she's Jewish. And I was saying how much I wished I could convert because I loved so much about Jewish culture and all that. And she said, well, you don't have to believe in God to convert. And my husband said, well, of course you have to believe in God to convert. It's a religion. And to be a religion, you have to believe in God. And what's really interesting is I've since polled a lot of my Jewish friends. And so far, every single one of them has said, of course, you don't have to believe in God to be Jewish. Being Jewish is about so much more than believing in God. I'm sorry, I've gotten off topic. No, you're good. No, because it, (laughs) it, it does make sense. Because one of the statements she says is that, you know, I don't want to believe in heaven because then I would have to believe in hell. And the other aspect was, is that we don't need to believe in that stuff, believe in God, because we need to believe in what we have now and the life that in making the life that we have the best that we can have. And I really looked at that. I was like, well, yeah, that's, that's a given, but it also sent me on, on, on that trail that, that, uh, you know, rabbit hole of, do they believe in it? And, you know, like you said, majority of them do think of uh, heaven as uh, it's, they, they call it uh, Gen Eden, uh, Gen Eden and another one. And I do not want to destroy that one um, off the top of my head. Um, but there's a lot. <laughs> How are you- yeah, sorry, go on. Because no. you spent a lot of time like going down little side. I do, I do, I do. It's, it's sad. It's scary. Yeah. I, I have a problem. Um, <laughs> but no, it's fun. Yeah, great. Yeah, because there was another part uh, that was really interesting that I thought was um, very. What's the word I want to say? Uh, not very well known, and that was uh, when her father took her to the Philharmonic to uh, the music hall that he goes. Um, that when he was starting to tell her about, you know, that everything there is, you know, made out of wood, there's nothing that's real. Even the stone is wood. And then the idea of, you know, what's that say about the culture in regards to philharmonics of the facades that, you know, we develop over long periods of time. And 
but the way that he said it and the way that he worded it was very interesting. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to get your insight on that real quick because I believe that is very important in understanding the what music does to people and how it really brings out things within us, but we're still afraid to show. Right. Both of Orly's parents are performers and performing, of course, is always a kind of lying, a kind of, you know, pretending things are true that are not mm -hmm. true. It's, it's, it's creating something. It's that, that's the act of creation really. Um, and I think I became a little bit obsessed with the Vienna Philharmonic. Yeah. That was, that was one of my, yeah, because they were so, so evil in how they treated their Jewish musicians. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there was a facade, you know, the, fa the facade was here are all these musicians playing together, but some of them are Jewish and some of them are Nazis, mm -hmm. right? Yet they're sitting right next to each other. And the Jews knew who the Nazis were. Mm -hmm. The Nazis knew who the Jews were. Mm -hmm. And there they are harmonizing with each other in music, um, which, I, I just was really interested in exploring Orly's father because what was it like to sit there mm -hmm. and play viola next to people who wish you were dead? Yeah. And then, and, and then, you know, I mean, then the Vienna Philharmonic and this, this, there has not been enough written about this, yeah. at least in English, there has not. Um, they continued to employ Nazis until 1967. Yeah. They awarded medals to Nazis. Yep. They, th this organization does not have a great track record in human rights. And they also, I mean, they didn't even employ a woman until after 2000. And, you know, they, they, they contend that there's, you know, a very special sound that only white men can make. <laughs> and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to employ anyone with a different color skin or a different gender or mm -hmm. anything like that. And I mean, what's really interesting is I listened to someone present a paper once on, auditions and you know now a lot of orchestra auditions are done blind where they have the musicians playing behind a screen so you can't see their gender or their ethnicity right and they find that when people are playing behind a screen women and um people of different colors are much more likely to be hired yeah um, than they are people could see them so anyway but the, yeah rabbit hole <laughs> it's a it's a absolute rabbit hole this entire book yeah. just sends you on rabbit holes all over the place <laughs> Uh, especially for people who who have a uh, passion for this this era and these right. type of stories, because this mm -hmm. this story is very much not only a Jewish story. It's not not even just a historical fiction. It's not just you know an, a women's empowerment story. It, it's it's all of those things that encompass what a real opera a real ballet a real musical composition hold and that is the mixture and the empowerment of everything that's involved in this and that's that's one of the major things i really enjoyed about this and i want to ask you one final question real quick based Wait, on go ahead before you say that i was gonna say i love that you just said that because i would so love to see this book as an opera mm -hmm. and i want I spoke to the Houston Opera has a book group and they all read Exile Music and they said, this should be an opera. <laughs> I can um, see it. So I, I, it should be an opera. Yeah, yeah. it, anyway. it, it should. It, it really should. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. You a oh, you're good. You're good. So one of my, because again, my brain, very strange as it, as it works and these rabbit holes. And it, I wanted to ask you this. What do you think the world would have been like if Franz Ferdinand was not killed by the Serbian nationalists? And how um, it would have impacted your characters' lives in some way, shape, or form? I'm, right. I'm not sure that history would have unfolded so differently, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think that incident was the match that lit up um, a, a pile of timber that was ready to burst into flames. I mean, the anti-Semitism was always there. Mm. It was always there lurking just under the surface. And it just took the the smallest match to cause it 
to turn into a major conflagration. Yeah. And I think that would have happened somehow with or without that particular incident. I mean, there have been massive um, murder of Jews throughout history, not just World War II, but oh, yeah, all absolutely. kinds of all kinds of pogroms against Jews and all kinds of anti-Semitism. So I think that something like this um, was waiting to happen in a way. Yeah, I, I, I believe that too, because at first I was thinking, it's like, I don't think this would actually have happened. But then, you know, looking at all of the anti-Semitism that's been around for mm-hmm. decades, generations, right. you know, you're right. It, it was just that, that spark that burned, just started a bonfire uh, of hatred within Europe. Um, thank you for being on here. We really appreciate you. I have the, the questions that Marcella normally asks. So you ready? Uh, oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm ready. Okay. What is your writing kryptonite? What is your weakness? My weakness is spending too much time exercising instead of sitting at my desk. That is my weakness. It's hard for me to sit in a chair. You know what? That is the first time I've ever heard exercise being a weakness to writing. I love that. Okay. Number two, is there anybody in your personal life that has inspired you to create these characters besides history? Yes. People I met in Bolivia. So actual Jewish survivors inspired this because there's no other book written about this part of the Jewish diaspora. And it feels like a really important story that needs to be written down and, and recorded. Mm -hmm. And so John Galanter, he is still living in La Paz. His parents fled uh, a part of Poland, which was then part of Ukraine, then the USSR. And now I think is part of Ukraine again. Mm Um, although who, who knows what country it belongs to now, but his, he's a descendant of Holocaust survivors. And so he was a close friend of mine in Bolivia, still a close friend of mine. And I've spoken to his daughter's book group. And so John Galanter, who's also a musician was one of the reasons that my characters ended up being musicians as well. Ooh, I like that. Okay. Mm. Is there a quote or musical piece or someone in your life that inspires you to continue to do your best at writing or anything else in your life? Well, I don't, there's one quote I think of fairly often and it's a, it's a Joyce Carol Oates quote, which I'm now going to butcher, which is even when my soul feels as thin as a playing card somehow when I sit down and start to write, it changes everything. Oh, I like that. And I'm sure I butchered the wording, but the essential meaning is, yeah, you feel like crap. You don't want to sit down to write. You just have other things you'd rather be doing. And then when you do sit down to write, then magic happens. Absolutely. And then everything changes, right? It happens in the doing. It's like I said to someone like, Getting to the chair is the hardest part. Once you're writing, everything's good. It's just getting to that chair. Yeah, absolutely. And final question. What is next for Jennifer Style? Well, I just finished a book that's about an underground community of LGBTQ people in Bolivia. So trying to get that book out into the world is my next project. I'm also halfway through a book about an artist in Uzbekistan. And I have a bunch of stories in progress. I've just sold a couple of essays that are coming out soon. So there's always a bunch of things cooking. It sounds like it. Basically, you just have an entire restaurant of creativity happening at one point. And you're the chef. Yeah. I'm having trouble focusing on just one thing. There's just too many exciting projects to work on. I know. I have the same problem again. Jennifer, thank you again for being on the show. I really appreciate you being here. You're welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for having me. So everybody, listen, this, again, we have something here that needs to be talked about. You know, this is something that should be in every school. It needs to be on the shelves. It needs to be taught in history, uh, in English classes, in history classes, in 
everywhere. It needs to be talked about because this book hits on so many different things. And like you heard, you know, it's not just about the Holocaust. It's about power, women empowerment. It's about how people were, uh, you know, people were um, treated within the Philharmonics in Vienna. It's about all these little things, the journeys, the people that we touched, what we trust, that we don't trust, you know, and how quickly hatred can change even the longest of friends to now your enemy. So there's so many little, little things under that are under the wording here that she's showing you. And honestly, everybody needs to go get it. It is a great novel. It's a long novel, but you know what? Novellas are good to have, you know, you know, Lord of the Rings was a very long one too, but you know what? It was still worth it. So if you love, you know, historical fiction, you love Jewish historical fiction, women empowerment, music in general, you need to go out and get this book. And we have the links in her profile that will be up tomorrow um, as well. So actually today. So you guys need to please just go out there, show her some love, go to her links that will be in her profile as well. And just give her all the love and encouragement to continue to not allow her exercising to keep her from her writing, because this is a restaurant of creativity that everybody needs to go to. So I want to thank you all for being here with us. We love you. We cherish you. And again, keep inspiring, keep writing and keep loving one another. Hey folks, that's a wrap for this episode of Beyond the Pen. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to stay connected and up to date with everything Beyond the Pen, follow us on Twitter at Beyond the Pen Pod and Instagram at Beyond the Pen Podcast. For even more content and exclusive access to our guest profiles and more, make sure to visit our website at beyondthepenpodcast.com. Don't forget to join our Facebook fan page to interact with our favorite authors and fellow fans of the show. And if you want to take your Beyond the Pen experience to the next level, check out our selection of video interviews on Traverse TV's video on demand and live stream. You can access these interviews through your Roku, Amazon Fire, Apple TV, Google Play, iTunes, or the Traverse TV app. So until next time, thanks again for tuning in and remember to keep writing inspiring and sharing as you go beyond the pen.